0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody. It's March the 8th, the Wednesday, 2023, a special show today from London where I'm spending the week. Um, A few months ago, we had a great show uh, with one of America's finest and most successful novelists, Jean hanf uh, who had a new book out, The Latecomer. It's still pretty fresh. And, and when we talked to uh, Jean, um, she suggested that when it comes to politics, a novelist's first priority is to tell a good story, so we should forget politics. Of course, regular viewers and listeners to this show know That's a hard thing for me to do and perhaps to invent an Orwellian idea. uh, Novelists can forget politics, but politics often can't forget novelists. That's certainly true of Philip Roth, um, for whom many books have been written about his politics or lack of politics. Uh, There's a celebration uh, next week in Newark, New Jersey, of the great man's work, Philip Roth Unbound. Um, And uh, Gene Hanf-Korolitz is participating in this uh, event uh, on a panel, fascinating panel, What Gives You the Right, a Conversation About Representation, Imagination, Empathy, and Exploitation. Uh, I think one of the reasons why Jean got appropriated, to use uh, 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 an appropriate word for this panel, was that her previous book um, was, uh, her previous novel was The Plot, uh, a novel about cultural appropriation. And Jean is joining us from New York. Jean, welcome.
1: Hi. Actually, I'm not in New York. I'm in Illinois. I'm at an artist colony north of Chicago where I've been working on a sequel to The Plot.
0: A sequel to the plot? Wow. Is that is that news?
1: Well, it's not. Um, I mean, I, I, I do answer the question that way when I'm asked what I'm working on, but it, it has not been announced in any kind of official way.
0: So, Jane, before we went live, I said, are you a fan of The Great Man? Uh, and you responded... Uh, circumspectly which is your middle name um here we have a picture for people watching of the great man from 1973 looks like a movie star and he behaved perhaps like one well i
1: I assume you're saying the great man with air quotes around great yeah
0: i mean i'm obviously uh, yeah was he a great man for you g
1: um he was an important writer he was not um part of my you know my personal pantheon of of favorite writers, but he was certainly influential, um, I think, really more to to me as a Jewish person than as a future writer, because some of those uh, books that I read at the beginning of my reading life, in my teens, in my 20s, Goodbye Columbus, and Portnoy's Complaint, these were absolute, you know, blasts out of you know, a culture that I didn't really know anything about because I had such a, a a non-religious and 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 not even very culturally Jewish upbringing. So I really learned about what it meant to be Jewish from writers like Roth and Erica Jong and Chaim Potok, and even people like you know Gail Parent, who is is not much remembered these days. So you know, I, I learned myself through books, and Roth was a big part of that.
0: It's interesting you say that about Roth. Um, the title of the panel you're doing with Megan Dorm, Lauren Michelle Jackson, and Hannah Rosen. Interesting that there's no men on those panels. Uh, it is interesting. I wonder it? if that's a coincidence. Um, well, probably. But, uh, especially discussing a male novelist. Anyway, that's uh, uh, not my business. It's the events business. Um, this idea of uh a cultural appropriation is interesting in the way you present rock because you suggest that to him he's important as a jewish writer are you suggesting he taught you more about your own cultural identity
1: absolutely no question about it i mean i i uh i i grew up in new york city uh i went to a very progressive school uh, a lot of us were Jewish and virtually nobody uh, was a practicing Jew. I, you know, we had a Christmas tree. So I really knew nothing. I learned it all from books. So, um, you know, in that sense, he was a very, he was, he was an important.
0: Uh, what, what did it teach you, Roth, about being Jewish?
1: You know, there is a moment in Portnoy's complaint where uh, Portnoy is in Israel. And he has sex with an Israeli woman, a Sabra, uh, in other words, a, a person who was born in Israel. And she castigates him. Uh, you know, I haven't looked up this quote in many years, so I'm I'm quoting from imperfect memory. But she says something like, you you American Jews are so pathetic. And I just <laughs> thought, oh, my God, you know, what, is, what does that mean? But of course, you know, what she was, what this character was saying was, you know, we came here from uh, from the battlefield of Europe, either before or after the Holocaust, and we didn't even get a chance to put down our arms. We were already fighting, and you, American Jews, you know, you never saw any of that, and you're soft. You you have no idea what what anti-Semitism looks like you may you may get snubbed at the hotel when you turn up at the wrong hotel and they don't want you to stay there and that was a big thing in America as you probably know but but you know we're fighters and you're soft <laughs> and that you know that was a huge kind of check for somebody like me who'd never even thought about these things
0: check you know well, c-h-e-c-k not c-z
1: Correct. <laughs> I
0: mean, so so, are you saying that Roth made you feel bad, guilty about being an American Jew? Uh,
1: that's a little too strong, but he certainly raised my consciousness. And meanwhile, I, I, you know, I was also reading people like Chaim Potok, who uh, was writing about American Jews who um, who did not want Israel to be to be created. Who felt that you know the creation of Israel needed to wait for the arrival of the Messiah. So. I didn't know anything about that either. I, I mean, I was growing up, you know, 10 miles from that community that he was writing about in Brooklyn. And I, you know, I don't know that I'd ever seen a Hasidic Jew. So, you know, this is, this is why one of the reasons why we read. We, we read for entertainment. I certainly write for entertainment, but we also read to experience other people's lives and learn from them, which again, goes back to the um, subject of the panel.
0: Right, and the subject of the panel is cultural appropriation. I don't think a lot will be discussed about Portnoy's compa- complaint, um, but of course, the, the key book in the in the in the Roth corpus is, in terms of your panel, is the Human Stain, a book which was quite controversial because Roth not only wrote as um, an American Jew but also as an African American and had classic Rothian games with these what's your take on the human stain do you see it as a controversial novel
1: I I never did no I mean uh, it, this this was not an issue that I recall when the book came out um and I mean I read it as a kind of fascinating um exploration of of guilt and and the pain of hiding one's identity and, you know, uh, you know, much has been written about Jews pretending not to be Jewish or not knowing that they're Jewish. And I thought he was taking a, a different route to look at that and, and consider that. So I, d- I did not experience it as controversial.
0: One of your fellow panelists, as I suggested, um, is... Um... Lauren Michelle Jackson. She has a book out, uh, White Negroes, where cornrows were in vogue, and other thoughts on cultural appropriation. I'd actually like to get her on the show to discuss this panel too. Um, I think She's responding to um, Norman Mailer's book, The White Negroes, Superficial Rele- Reflections on the Hipster. Do you think, would it be fair to say that there, there are cultural similarities between the history of African-Americans and the history of American Jews, which perhaps legitimizes both Roth and and, and Mailer's right, and I use that word again in inverted commas, to to write uh, about uh, African-Americans or to write in the voice of African-Americans.
1: Your two-part question, I would say, yes, there are definite similarities and no, that does not necessarily (laughs) legitimize uh, one or the other, Uh, I mean, that. an effort uh, of American Jews in particular to uh, to have a a, a special entitlement to um, write in the persona of African-Americans, which I think is what you're asking. So, no, I don't think uh, that gives us a special, uh, a special advantage. But, you know, there was a, a kind of beautiful moment in American history when uh, Jewish people and Black people came together to instigate um, and promote uh, a civil rights agenda in the South that ultimately was successful. And you know, it was it was a moment that, in my own upbringing, at my very progressive school, was really uh, uh, immortalized. You know the the idea of those Jewish students from the north, and they were mostly Jewish students, um, going down to, to Mississippi in uh, 1964 for Freedom Summer, and participating in most of those uh, early parts of the movement was a really beautiful time. Um, but eventually, as happens often in political movements, um, there was a separation where you know black Americans black Americans said to their, their friends, um, you know, this is, this is on us. We need to do this alone. So um, that's life. But it was, it was uh, an encouraging. and.
0: Well, well, I have to admit, I'm not, I mean, you know, this stuff better than I do. I'm not familiar with that narrative. Was it a conversation, a moment, a year that this happened?
1: I think, um, you know, of course we remember that, um Freedom Summer, 1964, sadly began with the murder of three students, Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, two of whom were Jews from the North. And uh, Cheney was a local African-American boy. The three of them were abducted together, beaten together, murdered together, buried together. And, um, you know, it was a, a singular, Expression of that bond that we shared, um, you know, in terms of the world that they envisioned, which was a world in which you didn't get beaten and abducted and murdered for being in one of the states of your country, uh, for, you know, sharing a, an idea with members of a different culture. So it was uh it was a flashpoint uh, in the civil rights movement and in our history.
0: Where are you Jean on this cultural appropriation stuff? I mean it's so controversial. Some of it seems a little silly. Lionel Shriver. Yeah, I mean, you know, Lionel is a
1: very brave woman. I'm not. Uh, I'm not a brave woman like Lionel. She will. I'll well, give you
0: the opportunity to be brave on my show. Where, where are you on on this stuff? On what, what do you think of Shriver? As you call her a brave woman, why is she brave? She made a famous uh, famous
1: uh, she did. controversial I
0: mean, speech in Australia a few years ago about why cultural appropriation, at least in her In her mind, she hoped it was just a passing fad. She wasn't taking it very seriously. As a novelist, she said, as writers, I think we have the right to claim anyone we like and and use their voice.
1: Mm. I I knew Lionel many years ago. I haven't seen her in many, many years, and I certainly haven't discussed this with her. So I, you know, I can't say what her, her motives were. But I, I have always known her to be a very outspoken and opinionated person. I might be opinionated, but I am not as outspoken.
0: But when you say brave, is that because she was te- she was willing to tell the truth or willing to put her head above the rampart.
1: I I I don't know that what she was doing was telling the truth. I do know that um, some people are more comfortable getting up and declaring themselves and declaiming uh, ideas, ideas than others. And I'm somebody who sits back and thinks and um, waits.
0: (laughs) Well, you do and you don't. As I said, your book, The Plot, focuses on the issue of uh, who has the right to tell someone else's story. What do you think the plot suggests on this? And, And what's your view?
1: I think that's one way to describe the plot, but another way to uh, to look at some of the issues in that novel uh, would be to say that there is a difference between a- appropriating language and appropriating ideas. And appropriating language is, you know, you know, you deserve to be boiled in oil and dragged through hell. In my opinion, if you do that, that is plagiarism. And I'm not sure you've come back from that. However, when it comes to appropriating ideas, that is in fact what we do. <laughs> that is what artists do. We have always done it. There is an interchange of ideas, of motifs, of, of stories, of characters. And to deny that is to not understand what art is and what literature is, and it is to basically say to artists, you know that thing you've been doing since somebody painted on the wall in France, you know, millions of years ago. <laughs> you can't do that anymore, and I, I just don't think anyone really wants that. If they really thought about what that meant, then they, they wouldn't ask for it. So that is, um, that's really what is at the core of the plot. Which you know, uh, for people who haven't read it, it's about a. A, a writer who has sort of run out of steam in his career and he has a student who has a brilliant idea, a plot. And, you know, he, he hears this plot in his classroom, but, you know, hands off. I mean, he, this, the student is at work on, uh, on his book and, you know, we're, we're honorable people and, you know, you would no more take that than you would, takes somebody's pocketbook at the next table in the restaurant. Um, But then the student dies and he dies without ever writing his book, let alone publishing it. And this uh, teacher um, takes the story, not the, not the language, not the text. And he writes his own book. And he has seen very little of the actual text that the student Uh, that his late student wrote, and he goes out of his way to deviate from that text. So he really writes an original novel using a storyline that that he heard from someone else, the same way, you know, um, uh, Jane Smiley wrote A Thousand Acres using the storyline of King Lear, which, by the way, Shakespeare also took from another source. So, I mean, there is this sort of daisy chain going back into the misty past of these stories. They are in many cases, archetypal stories that continually are repurposed uh, by us. I, I would also draw your attention to Barbara Kinsolver's, uh new novel, Demon Copperhead, which is David, uh, uh, oh my God, it's gone right out of my head. Um, David Copperfield, thank you. So, I mean, this is all around us. We
0: are But, aware, we're, but then yeah. coming back to the, the, the issue on the panel that you're doing, and I'm going to quote the whole overview. There is perhaps no more contentious debate in the arts today than who gets to tell whose stories. Do artists have the right to create fiction from perspectives beyond their own? Using Philip Roth's The Human Stain in which a white writer imagines the life of a, bra- of a black protagonist as a springboard, Our panelists will debate the ethics of representation and identity and the limits of artistic freedom. Are are there limits in this area, Jean?
1: I would say that, you know, if somebody is writing a memoir (laughs) and uh, portraying themselves as a person they are not—that is duplicitous, and deceitful, and and more. None of it's a
0: novel. I mean, we're talking about fiction.
1: Not if it's novel. So, I mean, also in the title of that, and of course, I had nothing to do with the title or or the uh, the makeup of the panel. Um, the word empathy is used, and empathy is is extremely important. One of the ways we, you know, just as I learned about being Jewish from works of fiction, you know, you you learn empathy from reading fiction. And I mean, here's here's a, an example that I may or may not be bringing up uh, next uh, at the panel a week from Saturday. Um, when I was young, I read a novel called Sounder, which is set in uh, the South in the period after the Civil War. I think it was in the 1920s in the South. It's about a black family and their struggle to live as sharecroppers. And I was completely um, educated by this book, sensitized by this book, I had, if, if I had, you know, I was a kid, if I had a thought about the Civil War at all, I had probably been taught that, you know, the Civil War ended slavery and everything was fine after that. And of course, that was not the case. So it was really this novel that um, woke me up to how brutal the situation was in the South for Black people after the war. So um, I knew the name of the author and I discovered that the author lived in a town where my cousin lived and my cousin was also a fan of the book. And so we went to his house with our copies of his book to to ask him to sign them. And when he opened the door, he was very white and um, it didn't. You know, that was a complete non event to me. Again, we were kids. He was the author. It didn't occur to us to be. Uh, confused about that and he signed our books you know I still have my copy that he signed and uh, we told him how much we loved his book and that's that is everything that I remember about that experience Um, today I might have questioned it but at the end of the day this was a book that was incredibly educational to me and profoundly moving should this man not have written this book I do not think so.
0: But if the book had been, uh, shall we say, uh, if the book had lacked generosity towards African-Americans, the man, if the white writer had been a, a racist of one kind or another, mm-hmm. um, would he have had the right to do it? Well, that,
1: that's also educational. You know, that we have to give but, our... But I mean,
0: can are you suggesting that this white writer only... And again, I use these words carefully in the language of the panel you're doing at the Roth uh, event. That they only have the right to do to, 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 to sort of appropriate someone else's identity and write as a, in, in their fictional voice if they're done in a sympathetic, empathetic way.
1: No, I I don't I don't think so. I mean, I I think. At the end of the day, this is about creating an imaginative work and people are good and people are bad and people are every shade in between. And to to be hampered in one's ability to make things up, you know, that's the that's a slippery slope that I don't think any of us want to go down.
0: So you really agree with Lionel Schreiber? You may not be quite as brave. I, as I, I
1: will not- I will not be drawn back to discuss Lionel Shriver.
0: Well, leaving aside Lionel Shriver, you think that fictional writers have essentially the right to invent characters, whatever race or gender they choose to be and do whatever they need to do as fictional writers and produce a book, and that's the end of it.
1: I think uh, to hamper and and, uh, limit our imaginative abilities is... A very very dangerous place to begin, but I I I want to stress that you know we can talk about rights, but we can also talk about responsibilities. Do we have a responsibility to uh, to not uh, promote dangerous cultural stereotypes? I think we do. So, I mean, I here, here's another kind of off, slightly off-topic example from your own country of origin. I was reading an old uh, an old uh novel from the nineteen tens a British novel, which was a kind of romp uh about a couple sort of running away from bad guys in and around london and they're they're on a date basically it was sort of like it happened one night, but in London, and at one point uh the the hero is out of money, so he goes to get some money from a Jewish man and his son. And the descriptions of this, you know, I'm enjoying this book. It was a lot of fun. And then suddenly here I am in the midst of the most disgusting anti-Semitic tropes. Um, Then he goes to his new girlfriend and explains where he's gotten this money. And she says to him, oh, no, 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 you must never deal with these people. You know, they always cheat you. So... (laughs) That was the only appearance of a uh, of a Jewish person in this lovely, light, frothy, uh, you know, early 20th century fun, fun novel. And, you know, let us pause to just employ every single cultural stereotype, negative cultural stereotype. Um, And, you know, suddenly all the fun is gone and we're remembering, you know, we're 20 years before. The Nazis and um, this is exactly how that happens so you know it, it was unnecessary and um, deeply damaging and kind of changed the whole game for me so yeah
0: yeah I'm going to see the light we, we discussed this before we went live the Le- the Lehman trilogy tomorrow night in London and the theater and that's been accused of being anti-semitic um so c- c- coming back to um Uh, Well, you know, dealing in those kind of stereotypes that you talked about in that novel. Coming back to The Human Stain, you talked about the responsibility of a writer. Do you think The Human Stain is a responsible book? It's so, like so much of Roth's work, it's so prescient today, um, talking about cultural appropriation and misappropriation at an American college, a liberal arts college. Do you think it's a, is it a a responsible novel? I mean, it's clearly he's a master writer. We know that. But in my, do you see it as an act of responsibility or irresponsibility? I
1: think to, to use the word responsible kind of t- tips the conversation in a, in a different direction. I, I don't think he was being responsible or irresponsible. I think he was exploring a human idea. I mean, he put the word human in the title of his book um he might have been writing about a jewish person who was uh in denial of his jewishness that's that's certainly um uh a topic that was discovered i mean i i can't remember the i can't remember the year gentleman's agreement came out but that was uh of a similar topic um but he chose to explore that through a less direct way. And I don't, I mean, if you read the memoirs, and of course we're not talking about memoir, if you read the memoirs about people passing as not Jewish, people passing as not black, you know, you do see similar um, impact of this guilt and this inability to connect with other people, which is, as I recall, what the situation is in. in in the human stain so i don't think responsible is really the the right way to approach it i thought it was a a a very interesting and very um evocative and very moving and very complex way to look at all kinds of prejudice
0: one of the really intriguing things about the human stain is that Philip Roth, and this was published in The New Yorker, wrote an open letter to Wikipedia suggesting that the Wikipedia entry on uh, the human stain uh, was wrong and that, uh, in fact, um, rather than um, their interpretation, he actually was inspired to write the book. um, And he talks about... um, uh, the germ of the idea, quoting, I think, Henry James, um, came from a a man he knew called Mel Tumin. So that adds to the complexity that um, Roth had to write to Wikipedia to tell them that they were wrong in their interpretation of the book. And the biggest irony of all is that Wikipedia rejected him as an authority, even though he was the author of the book. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I can can understand the frustration. I mean... um... Wikipedia can be very frustrating, and of course, we all assume that what we read (laughs) is true, and it's not necessarily the case.
0: But this idea of being the 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 credible source, Gene. Once you create a character, are you the credible source, or do they acquire a life of their own?
1: That's a really interesting question. Um, You know, it it is so murky in there in our heads. That we often don't know where something came from. There can be, you know, sometimes you you have a clear um, source for an idea. In in The Lake Comer, for example, there were, I mean, I, I based a major part of a of a major character's identity on an episode of Antiques Roadshow, of the British Antiques Roadshow that I had happened to see in london in the middle of the night years before i mean that is a that i could point to and say yes that's where that came from but often you have no idea where you're pulling this stuff out you know we we uh writers are readers and we become writers because we love books and by the time you know that first novel gets written there are hundreds if not thousands of books rattling around back in there and and often you know, it's a mystery to us where the ideas come from. And, and that is why we're so obsessed with plagiarism because deep down we're afraid that we're actually doing it without our own knowledge. So yes, when Philip Roth says, but this is what this came from and this is what I base that came from, that, that from maybe, <laughs> and it's certainly, you know, I would certainly take his word over mine, for example, about where Philip Roth got his ideas but he may not be entirely in possession of, of, the, of the the source or sources and conflicting sources of where an idea came from. So I would listen with great interest, but I would not necessarily take it as fact.
0: As a, as a fiction writer, do you just sometimes have to make an effort to keep certain fictional characters out of your work? Maybe make sure that Nathan Zuckerman doesn't barge his way into your novels, into your
1: (laughs) that's such a fascinating question. Nathan Zuckerman has never come anywhere close to anything I've ever written, but um
0: so uh, as you know, Gene, he may have done it surreptitiously, maybe they're all the time. (laughs) You 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 suggested that Portnoy's complaint was a central book in your identity and unfolding as a novelist. So maybe
1: yes, so that um not so much the characters, but certainly that setting, that world becomes part of your world view. The world of High and Potok in Williamsburg uh, or Crown Heights, I can't remember which it was, Uh, even though, you know, I grew up 10 miles from there, but I, I didn't know it at all. But after reading those novels, that was part of my, you know, my internal atlas of, of, how people were living their lives in the world that I also inhabited. So again, you know, we read for that kind of world building and out of that internal world building comes our fiction. So it's much more murky than I think people often realize. For example, (laughs) sorry, I'm sorry to keep pulling out these random examples, but after the plot was published, um, I started to see, all over social media. Oh, she stole that from X. Oh, she stole that from Y. And I, you know, I was deeply offended. And then I was amused. And then I said, I'm going to write all these down. And I started to make a list of all the books, movies, TV shows, I supposedly stole my story about a stolen plot from. And it was a fascinating list. It was everything from Death Trap to Riverdale, which is a TV show, season four of Riverdale, which spoiler alert, I never watched. Um, the 1980s remake of the movie DoA with Dennis Quaid, which featured a, uh, uh, a a college teacher who can't write his novel. Uh, and and the you know the the lesson from this is that these ideas are. Out there, and we are all pulling from them. The plot is full of unoriginal ideas, uh, a stolen idea, uh, a writer who can't write anymore, a washed-up writer. These are all things that have woven in and out of literature, movies, TV shows. I guess, um, you know, since these things existed, and to 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 claim that everything is originally yours is to invite um scrutiny that you do not want
0: <laughs> yeah and i think this is reflected uh, martin putschner who's a harvard professor um he describes culture in these terms uh, he's been oh, on man. the show before he has a new book out the culture the story of us from cave art to k-pop i want to get martin on to talk about this book yeah i
1: will
0: watch he, that. <laughs> yeah um, i think he presents us as people in the same way as you're presenting literature finally it's going to be a fascinating panel um uh, I wish I could be there, Gene. F- finally, one thing I think that's going to change everything is I'm not sure, and I, I know you're not much of a technology person, but there's a new technology in Silicon Valley called Chat GPT, which is AI, artificial intelligent language, which is essentially, and I use this word carefully again, appropriated all of us to enable us to create artificially intelligent voices. Um, My sense is this is going to reopen the whole debate about cultural appropriation in a very interesting way. Have you been keeping up with this? Do you have any thoughts on the way in which AI can change all this?
1: I have not been keeping up. It it has penetrated the outer limits of my awareness. I'm writing a novel right now, as I said, so my, uh, you know, the pores are not particularly open at the moment, but I, I, I have been hearing about it. It (laughs) <laughs> it's hard to imagine that any kind of computer generated art will ever replace the messy, imperfect, contradictory and weirdo interior of the human imagination. But I guess we'll
0: see. Let's say, Jean, that you accept the argument of some people that you as a white Jewish writer can't, shouldn't appropriate the, the voice of a black American man. If ChatGPT enabled you to do that, if you could enter into ChatGPT, which you actually can, create an African-American male voice, a 40-year-old who grew up perhaps in Newark, New Jersey, maybe a character in a in a Philip Roth book, would you do it? Does one have a right, do you think, to rely on the algorithm as a novelist? I, I,
1: I wouldn't and- do it for 100 reasons before I got to that reason. So I, I don't think I'd ever get as far as... Uh, considering that reason uh you know if the day comes when i'm supposed to enter into something called jet, chat chat GPT in order to write a novel i'm out i have done you know i am writing my ninth novel right now i think that's that's uh, not bad for a life's work and if if artificial intelligence takes over from here i think that's an excellent time to stop doing what i've been doing